from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, agricultural bank Oxbury raises £20 million in a funding round. Pay Later calls for open banking to be legally required for credit assessing. And the world's first fintech sitcom. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word about some things we're cooking up at 11FS. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome to episode 644 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11 of us colleague, Deepa Anikindi, lead product manager. How are you doing, Deepa? Really well, thank you. Great to be in the studio. It's exciting. It's our first time in the studio together. It is. Um, it's nothing like lockdowns to make sitting in a room seem exciting. There we go. Um, <laughs> um, as always, we're joined by some special guests. Making a debut on Fintech Insider, we have Tim Coates, co-founder of Oxbury Bank. Welcome to the show, Tim. We'll get into your news very shortly, but can you give us a quick introduction to Oxbury Bank, please? Uh, sure. Oxbury Bank is the first uh, ag tech bank uh, and the only UK bank with a dedication to farming, food production and the rural economy. Uh, we've been live for about 15 months now and we're going from strength to strength and uh, happy to be here to talk about that in more detail. Welcome. And it's also a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Dan Morgan, policy lead in Europe for Plaid. Welcome to the show, Dan. Our listeners will probably be familiar with Plaid, but can you give listeners a quick recap on Plaid and your role, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, Plaid is an open banking payments platform that's powering digital financial services. Uh, we connect with over uh, 12,000 different financial institutions, and we power over 6,000 different fintech applications uh, in Europe, UK, uh, and North America. My role as the policy lead uh, in the UK and Europe is to uh, speak to governments and regulators and look to try and shape uh, the future of digital financial services so talking about things like open banking, open finance, getting the standards right, uh, but looking to try and uh, evolve thinking uh, in government, uh, set the rules in how we operate in the market. Important stuff. Okay, and welcome. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is that Oxbury Bank has raised another £20 million in an accelerated funding round. This was reported in Fintech, Futures and Elsewhere. The Agricultural Bank has followed up a £31 million Series C funding round in March with a further £20 million in funding now. The add-on takes Oxbury's total capital raised to £68 million since the bank opened to customers in February 2021. The latest funds will be put towards the development of its Oxbury Earth core banking platform, which the bank says will support funding British farmers. As part of the funding, Oxbury also revealed it has surpassed a £500 million milestone of completed or in-progress lending, reaching the figure after just 15 months. Oxbury is the UK's only bank 100% dedicated to serving farmers, the food supply chain and the rural economy. Tim. Great to have you here to discuss this. Firstly, many congratulations on the new round. How did you first hit on the idea of an agricultural bank? I think people who haven't thought about this would think digital and farming are about as far apart as they could be, but that's probably not true. Where did the idea come from? Well, thank you for having me, first of all, Ben. And I would just quickly come on to that digital farming point first, which actually is uh, farmers are some of the uh, quickest adopters of certain technologies if they can see the use case for them. The penetration of the of mobile phone originally was very high in the agricultural sector for actually quite obvious common sense reasons. So that they're, they're not as far apart as you might think. And there's obviously uh, quite a lot of very detailed technology, very specialised technology operating in fields and on farms and in the food supply chain um, across the country and across the world. But uh, so Oxbury, the idea, well, personally, I'm from a family farming background uh, myself and um, still uh, run the family farming business um, as sort of a second day job. 
and uh, I was was away from that, as it were, for a period uh, in, earlier in my career, working in the city, um, including a, a reasonably good stint at a very uh, exciting time for new banking entrants uh, when I was working at the Financial Conduct Authority, where I uh, was the lead in the team that did the new banking authorizations. So, so watch some very uh, important names go through that process, like Starling and Monzo and Clearbank and others. But the idea was one of those serendipitous moments where um, sort of several people had the idea at the same time, but actually managed to find each other and uh, and come together and, and work on it. So so my co-founders, uh, James Farrer and Nick Evans, um, they've got a, a wealth of experience across banking, agriculture and technology development um, in, in a number of really exciting roles, both in the UK and globally. So it was a meeting of minds and a meeting of ambition to meet a real problem which is that um, financial services provision for agriculture in particular, but also the wider food supply chain, can't really be served by SME banking done the way it's done, which tends to be quite um, vanilla and non-specific. Um, it requires uh, specific types of products, specific types of structuring, and that can only really be done from a position of expertise and knowledge. So that's what we've been able to do is actually build the technology requirement to deliver such products, such functionality, and to do that essentially to to a small business community, uh, as, as farming businesses in the UK are generally made up of uh, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, typically family businesses. And um, you know we've been able to develop those products and services to suit that market uh, in a way that others wouldn't necessarily be able to do so uh, at the low cost approach we've done, all using the sort of latest developments in fintech that that others have pioneered over the past decades, uh, and and related sort of approach to customer servicing that we can then put on the back of that. You know, we're great believers in letting the computers do what the computers are good at, and let people do what people are good at, which is building relationships. Um, and that's a really important part of our of our proposition is that you know we we actually go to every single farm that we lend to um, and get to know them as people as well as businesses, which is you know important for customer service but also for our own risk management. Sounds like you've had the perfect background for this, coming from a farming family and and, and being involved in running a farm while also um, working in financial services. But I'm curious, why didn't the UK have? A farming bank already. I mean, if you look at our two nearest neighbours, or two of our nearest neighbours, you look at France, Credit Agricole, the biggest bank, is a farming bank. Uh, you look at the Netherlands, Rabobank, again, pretty much the biggest bank in the Netherlands, is a big agricultural bank. What, why was there this gap in the British market? I think there's a couple of quite interesting things to, to note there, actually, which is if you look at, just before I get into that, why that gap, um, if you look at this contribution to GDP in those countries you just mentioned, from from their from their agricultural and food sector, it's it's of an order of a hundred percent higher than the contribution here in the UK or in or in Germany, which also doesn't have a dedicated agricultural bank. I don't think that's an accident. I think a dedicated agricultural bank is what is required to make them uh, the sector really meet its full potential. Why is there no dedicated bank? Well, there's one of those accidents of history, I think, to some degree. One, insofar as I think banking as a sort of multi-sector proposition was more sophisticated earlier in the UK than in other jurisdictions. But one, uh, I'll actually take you back to 1928, so nearly 100 years ago, uh, and the government actually legislated to create a bank for agriculture, recognising that this was uh, a sort of gap in the market even then. That was the Agricultural Mortgage Corporation, which um, remained a national entity, was actually part of the Bank of England for many years till the 90s when it became um, acquired by Lloyd's Banking Group, where it now sort of sits there, sort of quietly doing about 4% of their balance sheet and, and, and not a lot else. So it's um, time that this sector really got, you know, the proper proper attention it deserves rather than being something that sort of is kind of forgotten about as a kind of subsector of a sub-business unit in, uh, in, in the large banks, which is what has been happening to date. What do you make of this story, Deepa? What do you think about this? gap in the market. So firstly, um, congratulations, Tim. Very exciting news. Um, I think it's really interesting, really exciting um, to, to see. And um, we talk a lot about how the world's moved on from kind of analogue to digitised. And one of the things that we've seen in that is how brands kind of pushed customers into lower cost channels where you lose that kind of richness and depth of, of relationship building to your point earlier, Tim. So what's really good to see here is as we're moving further down the kind of digital growth curve, if you will, we're starting to see, uh, you know, uh, companies such as, as yours kind of uh, focusing on actually delivering services, which um, 
you know, specific groups of people need and being able to to provide actual value by understanding what those customers need and it not just being a generic kind of, as you say, SMB service. So really enjoy that really, you know, kind of solving for that service gap and, and enabling you, as you've seen, you know, to, to become top of wallet and front of mind for customers. Dan, I'd love to bring you in as well. Have you, I mean, as you work obviously across multiple European markets, I believe, and, and, and so on, have you seen much activity and interest in sort of agricultural banking in other other parts of Europe? Apologies if that's an unfair question. Yeah, I, I, I haven't got much of a view on that. But what I, I do think uh, is interesting that what this demonstrates is you said you used to work at the FCA and I did follow the new bank startup unit and some of the stuff they brought in about lowering uh, introducing competition in banking because it's highly concentrated in the UK. So that's been a big driver for lowering barriers to, to entry for like full stack maturity transformation banks in the UK. It's something you don't see in many other markets. And then that coincided with digital that enabled that, obviously, which is lowering costs and increasing access. So there were the two drivers and I can see why, why it's, a, it's, a, it's a good niche. Uh, and then, of course, the, you know, fintech isn't just a separate niche anymore, is it? It's, it's servicing whole areas that, you know, wouldn't necessarily have thought about it before. So I think it's, it's interesting how potentially regulatory changes and digital coming together can open new markets like this. Yeah, well, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I think regulation actually can be a force for good, having, having given some of my career to, to that very purpose. And actually, I think, you know, uh, the other area where it could be a force for good in, in due course, which is highly relevant to our business model, is, is, is against, um, you know, ESG environment in particular. I think you're absolutely right on the, um, on the regulatory point. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the fintech explosion that we've seen over the past decade and a bit longer, a lot of that has indeed been enabled by regulators, re- regulators is being a little bit creative and thinking about what's in the best interest of, of, of customers or, or voters. Um, you know, that's, that's enabled a lot, a lot of the creativity. Um, but, to, but to come back to Oxbury, what are you, you going to do with the, with the funding, um, Tim? You know, you, you, you're talking eloquently about how farmers are a bit underserved. What does this, what's this funding round going to enable you to do better? Or do more of yeah. So the so the so the timing of the funding round um, has been because we're we're facing um, phenomenal demand for our services and, and growth, and we are able to sort of execute on our pipeline far faster than the competition because of the, the technology processes that we've built. And as such, we want to make sure that we can continue to meet that demand. And, and, and the context of that demand at the moment is, of course, well, it's the cost of living crisis, but written into our sector, which is you know, the cost of food, which is actually then the cost of agricultural production. Um, I know we're all getting very worried about double digit inflation you know, in, 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 our, in our daily lives at the CPI level. But actually in, in agriculture, some, some key agricultural inputs are at triple digit inflation. And unsurprisingly, farmers want to continue to produce uh, and support uh, food security in the UK, particularly against the sort of geopolitical context we find ourselves in. But also they've got a big transition they need to do in the environmental context. Both of those things require funding. So there's a, there's a strong demand um, and we're here to service it. So we want to make sure we're you know, uh, ready to meet that demand without any artificial slowing down of our proposition. But then there's the second part of our proposition, which is the Oxbury Earth platform. So we've 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 built our core banking platform uh, as a sort of co-development originally, uh, and then we actually acqu- acquired our co-development partner at the start of the year, and we are essentially becoming the first uh, customer of our banking as a service platform uh, because we think that the problems that uh, sit in the UK, both as fundamentals in the agricultural sector, exist in other jurisdictions, and we want to sort of be seen as the you know the 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 right to win in our vertical and we think there's we can take what we've learned uh for here in the uk uh, and transform financial lending to farmers in 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 jurisdictions around the around the world so is that a little bit like let's say someone like oak north that that's sort of trying to take its platform and export that to other markets where it maybe won't compete directly is that is that the a fair analogy uh, i i think it's i think it's a, fa- a fair analogy i think um you know we we think that there's sort of a, a greater number of use cases we think that we could easily be partnering with existing financial institutions who may or may not be agricultural specialists you know Rabobank, bank for example to improve their existing offering through our technology uh, and approach support the creation of new institutions where they may need to be created in other jurisdictions uh, there's, there's a number of those around the world where the demand for the financialization of agriculture is high we think there's a great opportunity uh, for um, institutions globally who are not financial services companies currently to offer embedded finance. Uh, and we're looking at that as a strategy for deployment um, such that uh, farmers, when they are uh, transacting with their suppliers, are able to, to access finance at the same time through that platform. Really, really interesting story. 
Well, congratulations again on on the raise. And um, if this plays a small part in increasing food production and bringing more land into food production over the next few months, I think there'll be people all around the world who are pretty grateful for that because I think uh, the world faces some very difficult uh, times over the next uh, six to 12 months. Okay, well, let's move on to our next story, which is that pay later which is one of those words that's spelt with a number in it. Um, a pay later has called for open banking to be legally required for credit assessing. This was picked up by Altfi, reported by Altfi and various others. So buy now pay later firm pay later is calling for open banking to be adopted as a legal requirement for credit assessment. The company has said it should be required as it is for credit checks to ensure safer lending as the cost of living crisis wor- worsens. The lender already uses open banking at the point of application and is urging other buy now pay later providers such as Klarna, Clearpay and Laybuy to do the same. Pay later managing director Sam Fogarty said, our fellow fintechs have a duty to do things differently and drive the financial services sector to do better. He continued, use of credit reference agencies alone is an example of this, especially when open banking enabled approaches are at our fingertips and give us essential insights and guidance to assess individuals' affordability. Dan, I'm going to come to you first. This sounds like common sense and sounds like it's sort of something that should have just happened anyway. Do you agree um, or is there more to this than that? No, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, for years, Plaid has been, uh, and many others in the industry, have been calling for you know robust data to be considered for credit decisioning. It's a big growth area in the market. I think OBIE's latest uh, impact report shows that borrowing is driving about eighteen percent of of use cases in the market now in the UK. It makes it makes total sense. We see a lot of examples of thin credit file activity, uh, rental passports, bringing more people in uh, by using that that real time data. So it, it makes total sense to me. We've seen similar things in the US, actually. Um, uh, back in 2019, the OCC, the Fed, uh, and others uh, recommend, strongly recommended that banks should consider using cash flow as alternative source of data for determining affordability. So not quite open banking or AIS, but similar principle from the regulators pushing on alternative data. And we're involved in a pro- something called Project Reese with the OCC over in the States there, where it's talking about credit invisible consumers and how we can use bank cash flow there as well. So it's something that regulators are aware of. So as a call to mandate, I, I think it makes sense. Um, I also think maybe uh, the market is going in that direction anyway, and there's other things the government could be doing to better underpin them decisioning. So at the moment, we can only use open banking data, which is payment accounts, as many people will know. But open finance, potentially, by having a greater right, could bring in other data sources, empower consumers even more, and provide a better picture for for lenders. So I think it's a good call uh, to be to be saying this. I think it you know drives some of the narrative around affordability on buy now, pay later, and provides a good solution. Mandating, I think uh, you know, it could be it could be tricky. There could be other things, maybe which have a, would have a bigger impact uh, on on the market around open finance. But I, I think it's a strong call. Deeper, what do you think Equifax and Experian and the credit rating agencies are going to think of this? Um, I mean, this is potentially a big threat to them, right? It is. I think one of the things, though, sorry to, to deviate slightly <laughs> from the question, is around. Um, I think the branding of open banking is, is something I, I know we've touched on the show before, but I think it, there's a lot to be said around that. And I think it's, you know, there, there is a bit of a um, a perception that needs to be shifted a little bit as because, uh, as you said, it, it seems really logical and it seems like the next step as buy now, pay later. And, you know, this kind of industry matures. Um, but there is there's, it feels like there's a little bit of a fork in the road. And, you know, open finance, down to your point, perhaps has the opportunity to, to change the perception. And so we can, you know, we can start to open out those use cases without it sounding a little bit um, uh, a, a little bit scary and a little bit risky. Um, to your point on the credit agencies, I think it's you know it's a point where they've owned so much of the market. It's been a very um, it's a little bit of an antiquated market. It's been a very um, one way street almost, mm-hmm. and I feel like this feels like a, a logical point where we, you know we've got data, we've got the infrastructure, and it should all be opened out. Who's this good for, Dan? You, you talked about um, I think you said credit invisible consumers, so presumably people without much of a credit history and so on who would this who would this benefit who who would who'd be better off if we shifted to open banking data or who might you know might be assessed more fairly or more accurately 
well, everybody that uses the service. Um, the more data that you have available, the, the better and more accurate that that picture can be. Obviously, those further down in terms of the, the in the in sort of the credit uh, ladder, if you will, that may struggle in traditional financial services have the most to gain. They have the most to gain from fintech uh, as a whole. I think you know uh, with, with digital finance, but anyone that uses the service will get a will get a better deal. So, obviously, you know, open banking more broadly is about opening up a market, which was payments data, providing more competition in that market by breaking down an asymmetric. Uh, you know, information you know, uh, silos, if you will, and then bringing more competition in uh, and reducing costs overall. This is another way of, of doing that, bringing more competition in and people will, people will benefit. So uh, whoever uses the service will be, but I think the biggest benefit will probably be those that can least afford it. Tim, I want to pull you in as a, as a, as a former regulator. Um, when, how far should could could or should regulators go? Because it's one thing to say, hey, you need to be doing proper credit assessments for buy now, pay later. Uh, it's another to start mandating you have to do those credit assessments in a particular way. Um, do you think do you think regulators in, in the UK or in other countries should go as far as saying you must use open banking data? Or do you think they should just be saying you must do a credit assessment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, just to take a quick half step back, I think, you know, I remember when I was working on the setup of the payment systems regulator before it even began, and obviously it's now one of the the drivers in, in this ecosystem, that you know, open banking was this great promise in sort of the, the cold fusion of democratized finance almost, and it still hasn't quite reached it reached its potential yet. Um, and that, that feels like quite a while ago. That you know, so some of these topics have been been around for quite a while, and you know, clearly, clearly there is a com- competition objective in 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 the UK regulators. The the FCA has it a primary one, and the, the PRA has it as a secondary one. And I think that competition, is, as Dan's been touched on, is 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 key. I do think it's for regulators to uh, enable. I don't think they should go far as far as prescribing because I think it's important for all firms uh, to be able to innovate and have their own approaches as long as they've got the right risk and controls in place, uh, which is which meets all existing regulatory principles. So I think, on the other hand, there is an enabling role that can be played by regulation. And I think the thing that's really going on here is about cross getting over that gap between innovation and use cases into trust by those who will need to use the services of open banking and open finance such that they are um, sufficiently informed and enabled to appropriately share their data in an in a appropriately permissioned way and can realise and recognise the benefit of doing that. This is actually something that the agricultural sector has faced for quite a long time actually in a, in a slightly set, different sense. There's, there's obviously quite a lot of data in agriculture that's quite important to quite, quite a large number of actors, not least government. It's a very data-rich sector. A lot of data has been collected for a long time. That has not always been scrupulously used by some of those actors who have been demanding it and that has you know and that's the point and that's in our sector has created a a sort of um lack of trust about data sharing just at a time when some of the opportunities are there uh and and i would hate for the for the wider consumer market to go the same way um so i think you know that data standards are probably uh, and the technical standards that go with it are important um, but back to your question, I don't think it's for regulators to prescribe exactly what those are. I think those have to be industry-led solutions. Dan, to Tim's point about trust, does does open banking help to overcome issues with trust? Does that create more trust? I mean, Deepa was sort of talking about, you know, the credit reference agencies and so on. Is Does open banking create more trust? I mean, despite Deepa's points about people maybe not quite knowing what it is. Uh, I, I don't think people need to know what open banking is, but it, 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 part of trust is also being empowered, having, having more power to make informed decisions uh, and that's what open banking does it creates more use cases it allows you to use your data to get a better deal so like initially the conversation about trust has been about all about privacy and that's why the regulation exists that's why gdpr exists that's why it's a regulated market in the uk and in europe and obviously the, the best actors have way to control and manage consents whether it's through dashboards or others and you can be more empowered through open banking and seeing where all your consents are actually, and at any one time, you can revoke them consents. So there are there are ways that it empowers consumers more, and which builds trust because you have a much clearer picture of what you are doing. You also, on the other hand, are more empowered than you were previously by getting a better deal, sharing your data, getting better payment options, or better credit, or um, onboarding easily, or get an easy a mortgage more simply. Whatever it may be, 
them things are the upside and build more trust and allow you to you know allow you to make them informed choices. So I think trust is is one is not just about privacy and are we safe and not doing anything. It's like are we in control? Are we empowered? Deeper. Um, I'm going to throw a last question at you. Given that re- regulators have got a kind of finite amount of time and finite amount of resources, what sh- do you think they should be focusing on? Should they focus on regulating buy now, pay later? Is that the priority, or is the priority? As, as the company pay later is saying, um, use open banking to, to data to do credit checks, which should be the priority for regulators, enabling and, and maybe mandating open banking data for credit checks or regulating the buy now pay to pay later sector more widely? What do you think is more urgent? So I'm always on the side of, uh, similar to Tim's point, that I I don't think the regulator should be stipulating how. I think that should be an industry-led kind of thought process. I think the regulator, in my mind, is there to set the kind of framework of like, this is how, you know, this is how you operate. Here's the infrastructure and here are the, the kind of rules of the game. And so I, I think the how is is one that they shouldn't stipulate, but one that they definitely have a role to encourage and, and drive forward. I mean, we speak to regulators all over the world, um, sorry, clients all over the world as well. And, and one of the things that we hear time and time again is just how forward thinking the UK regulators have been. And part of that is because they have been encouraging, they have been forward thinking. But I think there is a fine line between driving forward um, initiatives such as open banking, but then being too prescriptive and not letting the industry kind of uh, innovate its way through. Fantastic. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we will be back very shortly. Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. 55% of American millennials and Gen Zers, or should I say Gen Zers, aren't prioritizing savings. This is according to CNBC. 55% of 18 to 35-year-olds in the United States have halted their retirement planning since COVID hit. And 45% of that age group don't see a point in saving until things return to normal. This is according to a recently published survey from financial services company Fidelity, which polled more than 2,600 adults in mid-February on their retirement planning habits. 39% of those same 18 to 35-year-olds expect to retire later than they did pre-COVID, related to their decisions to delay their savings plans by a couple of years. The trend is partially due to a high cost of living for young people in America right now, including student debt, rising housing demand, and 8.6% inflation weighing on people's minds and wallets. However, the results also showed that 65% said 2022 was the year they put the pandemic behind them, with that percentage rising to 74% when just looking at the younger generation. Wow. Um, where do we start with this? Um, I mean, so firstly, wow, that's, you know, that's tough. You know, the United States is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So if that's happening in the States, you can be fairly sure it's happening all over the place. Is prioritizing spending over saving a good idea right now, Deepa? What do you think? I mean, it's tough. It is tough. So I guess a couple of things to, to kick off this conversation. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, over the last few years, kind of um, doing some research uh, and building products over in the US. And and these stats, unfortunately, don't shock me. And it's not the COVID element that I think is particularly um, noticeable here. I think even pre-COVID, I think the numbers were still shockingly high. You know, we were seeing a very low general financial literacy. We, we saw a very low amount of people thinking beyond paycheck to paycheck. And even things like, um, you know, the percentage of people who have a very basic emergency fund was was far lower than you would expect. So that was, you know, that, that, that was initially shocking to me. And that was probably, you know, three, four years ago. So the fact that COVID has exacerbated that, especially for the Gen Zers, as we're calling them, um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't really surprise me. Um, you know, as to whether you kind of saving spending, it, it's one 
you know, I can go down an economics rabbit hole potentially here, um, but you know, we're starting to see that uh, interest rates are becoming a bit of a, a less impactful tool um, for central banks across the world, and you know, we're starting to to see the impact of that. We're obviously seeing an incredibly high rate of inflation, et cetera, et cetera. The market's starting to price in inflation rates later this year, and whether that will start to impact things, we don't know. But I guess if we take the economics aside, I think for me the key thing is financial literacy and how how that. Um, it is democratized in a way that empowers Gen Zers to make the right decisions. And I, I think there's a lot of information out there at the moment. And one of the things that we see time and time again with this group is is how that how they distill the information down in a way that makes sense to them, is relevant and actually gives some actionable insights. And I think that's something that still is missing, especially in the US. Dan, what's your view on this? I mean, you you, you work across many, many different countries. I mean, I think every every country has challenges getting people to, to focus on things like retirement planning or life insurance. You know, there are some financial products that are notoriously hard to, to sort of promote to, to, to ordinary consumers because they seem kind of far out. Um, any thoughts on who does this well or how to tackle this? I think it's, as you say, it's a, it's a global problem. I think we, we did a report with Pension B a couple of years ago that had something like 68% of uh, all consumers under the age of, I can't remember what it was, 50 or something in Germany had not done any saving that year. It was like an enormous number, uh, slightly lower in France. We've got it in, in the report on, on longer-term savings. So it's, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon, and this is before the current financial crisis. These are all individual decisions about priorities, uh, and obviously, you know, everyone will be act accordingly based on on the environment. I think digital tools are obviously I'm going to point to a, a key to, to enabling uh, more empowerment for all age groups, but particularly younger people who would use them tools to invest and save and make decisions. We saw an explosion of digital finance during the pandemic, um, whether it was investing or wealth tech. Some of it more speculative, other of it more long term. But I think we'll increasingly see that, that people will manage their finances online um, and this will lower the cost of entry for a whole range of different uh, services. So people can invest in the stock market that couldn't ever have access to that before. So the options are there like they never have been, but potentially the main issue may be the actual income, which is under pressure than, than it has been you know, uh, in previous periods. But digital tools are definitely one that's going to, uh, you know, on, the, on the sort of supply side, lower the cost of interest to financial markets. Tim, what, do you think there's a role here for, 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 for people? Things like sort of branch, branch employees and you know, frontline teams in, in banks and insurance companies sort of to start encouraging people and persuading people? Or is that just, is that maybe that's nonsense for Gen Z, uh, that you know, younger people aren't interested in, in, in talking and listening to people and it's all on TikTok? I mean, is there... How, how 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 do you think firms can engage younger people in some of this? I think actually the the, the, the interesting sort of tech collaboration that could happen here, because of, particularly with the reference to the American market, I think is actually fintech meets edtech. That's actually been there's been a huge amount of developments for, for really obvious reasons off the back of the pandemic, and that in in America the edtech was way ahead of so many other jurisdictions even beforehand. Uh, and I think there's some really exciting developments going on over there now, having learned from the from the experience of the. Uh, of the pandemic of how to match the real world with with digital tools around education uh, and I think you know making actually education more compelling and more accessible uh, because clearly it is, this is an education issue um, as much as anything else and so actually I think the opportunity is really interesting in, 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 in those two segments meeting so so financial services firms uh, being able to, to work with uh, that kind of an approach um, to get in front of the, the right audience and provide the right sort of information that can can lead to slightly different sort of behaviours and and understandings of the importance of um, of engaging in certain financial markets, including savings and retirement savings. So I think that's actually quite an important thing. Um, it'd probably also be remiss of me not to kind of make some flippant comment, as it were, about the fact that maybe if uh, so many people uh, didn't receive their uh, pandemic checks and go, oh, I've got nothing better to do, I'm going to invest it in cryptocurrencies, um, you know, just they go, I've said it, then then maybe we wouldn't have had so many people who might be now feeling a bit burnt <laughs> and think, oh, none of this saving stuff, I'll just live for now, thanks. Do you have any do you have any facts to, to justify that? I and mean, obviously, some and some people clearly did do that. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being I'm being a bit flippant, but but with some serious purpose, which is you know that there have you know there has that has happened. There has been this this the risk on the other side of this, of course, is 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 the gamification of investment, right? And that that we do know did happen, and you did have people who you know were uh, 
you know, were given a given a check and but also nothing obvious to spend it on, and they and some of them went and did that, and th- those are the things that make headlines, right? So that it starts to feel like it's what's going on, and starts to create this uh, this feeling that um, uh, you know financial financial services is, is not for people, whether that's crypto or, or anything more 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 mainstream, or maybe crypto is mainstream, and I'm looking like a very old man now. Well, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about age, because I think it's natural for sort of older generations to sometimes look down on younger generations. And yet, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that the younger generations now are taking much more financial responsibility earlier than, than, than previous generations, including minded. But Deepa, over to you. What's your thoughts here? I was just going to uh, say something on the engagement model of pensions, right? So, you know, in an older world, you know, it's very kind of steady. You receive your, your salary, so a portion of that would go to your pension. You'd have no engagement with this model until at the point at which you want to retire. And now I think we're seeing the mindset shift a little bit where people don't just want to kind of put their money aside and never see it again. They want to engage. They want to, you know, there is a little bit of like, tell me, you know, why should I do that? There's lots of other options on the table. And so I think there is a real opportunity to to tighten that engagement model. It's an incredibly archaic way of thinking. I think that there's a huge amount of space in the kind of, you know, emerging wealth management world for someone to engage with with this generation. Dan, I'm going to throw it to you. Well, I think on the pension side, I think a successful policy measure has been auto-enrollment, um, which has really driven um, a lot of uh, increases in, in pension savings. Uh, by not just nudging, but uh, you know, almost forcing behaviour, uh, so that so policymakers can still play a role. Also, things like the uh, the pension dashboard, where they're looking to consolidate and give you a better view of of what's out there and, and find lost pensions, which is a, a government led project with the the industry. I think is is using digital tools in a sort of mandated regulatory fashion, which will help. And then obviously open finance in the pension sector is going to be key because you don't engage with your pension savings, which I suppose is good because they're meant to sit there long term and grow and you don't, don't look at it. But for younger people that might just get a statement once a year, that's not going to, that's not going to fly. Um, you need a little bit more control, a little bit more visibility. Um, and so some of the new entrants into this market, I think, are going to be, are going to be key. Uh, you know, regulatory pressure to open up these markets and pr- open up that data will help as well because it's really difficult to just put some money away and forget where it is and, and only get updated via a, a statement every now and again. So I do think fintech and digital could play a key role in bringing engagement on, on pensions as well. And you, you mentioned you know, Pension B in passing earlier, and I think you're right. There's, there's some innovative fintechs like Pension B that are trying to fix this. And of course, you know, Fidelity that you know commissioned the study behind this. You know, I'm sure some of the big established firms like Fidelity and Vanguard and so on are thinking hard about how do they track that, how do they crack this, how do they get younger, uh, younger Americans and younger people around the world more engaged. Pension B also working quite a lot on the impact point, and that's the that's the thing which is is also there is you know what's the purpose, and I think that's still to be exploited. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that Revolut has launched its first card reader in a venture into physical retail. So this was reported in City AM uh, that Revolut is launching physical devices with a card reader for shops and restaurants. Revolut, which now has around 18 million customers around the world and a 33 billion dollar valuation from its latest funding round, told City AM that it was launching the device in the UK and Ireland. The move comes as shoppers and diners are more reticent than ever to use cash because of hygiene concerns during the pandemic. Revolut's service for businesses will be extended in the coming months with a point-of-sale solution that will provide larger firms with more flexibility in integrating the reader with existing systems. Um, is this a problem that needs solving? Are small businesses underserved by fintechs in this area? I thought there were quite a few card reader solutions out there. Am I, am I missing something? Deepa, what have I missed here? I'm a little bit confused about this story, I've got to admit, because it feels like the, the industry, you know, Revolut's been a, an industry leader and has been you know, very disruptive in a lot of things they've been doing. But this feels like something that perhaps is moving forwards in a way that, you know, we're seeing um, phones being a payment terminal and we're seeing, you know, a move to real mobility within payments. Having said that, I wonder whether, it, you know, it, it could just be a, a good steady revenue stream that could be a good opportunity for them. You know, back to your point, it feels like a very crowded marketplace. Um, SMBs have, it's a very disaggregated marketplace as well. And so I, I don't know how um, how easy that's going to make it for them. Dan, help us out. What are we missing here? This is this would have been innovative 10 years ago. It would have been useful five years ago. But now it seems like, well, I mean, yes, you might want to consolidate with Revolut, but are we, are we missing something here? 
Do you see an angle on this? But there's an abundance of room for fintech companies to help SMEs with uh, with problems, um, and so I'm sure there will be uh, a market. I, I think an interesting one in terms of uh, small businesses accepting payments and in a retail setting is how do we get account to account payments on a retail front? I think that's going to be a real growth area in open banking, but other other markets around the world. So we'll move away just from cards to to different forms of payment, which we wouldn't need point of sale terminals. And in terms of fintech supporting uh, SMEs, they're slightly higher usage than consumers for open banking. In terms of a lot of the uh, accounting platforms, very reliant on open banking feeds, uh, particularly on the really small side. So a big growth there. Um, it's a real no-brainer that even the accountants use it for uh, for small businesses. So I, I actually think in terms of being quite savvy and using tools quickly um, and where fintech can help, small businesses are, are pretty quick on the, off the mark and are being reasonably well served today. I'm interested by your point on account-to-account pay- payments. And I'm wondering, you know, is that is that part of what's going on here? Is this a clever sort of margin arbitrage sort of thing tim I, I yeah i think there might be something something in that and i think or something more widely in that i think actually it's a market you say is, does it need does it need entering again but actually it's got a low barrier to entry as a result of what has been done by others already so actually it's quite easy for revolut to get in there and for them to fully understand that data ecosystem that is around those payments actually it's quite an intuitive way of getting in there and being able to develop and maybe they'll they'll actually be the, be the ones who introduce the next revolution off the back of it. Uh, I'm sure they probably would like me saying that line. But um, <laughs> I, I, that's all speculation. I don't know anything particularly, but it would sort of meet with their kind of sort of, um, you know, play in a lot of different verticals um, and, and work out ways to tie the data together um, to, ex- to exploit them as new products in the future. So I think that could be what's going on here. And, and Revolut would certainly have the brand awareness because, uh, you know, we are sort of, you know, fintech industry in, in, insiders, you know, we're all familiar with sort of Square and Izettel and Sumarp and so on. And to, to us, they're well known. But actually, to your average person setting up a small business either in Britain or Ireland or elsewhere in Europe, Revolut is a much bigger, better known brand. I mean, in Ireland, Revolut's a verb, basically. So maybe, you know, that's part of it. You know, is, is this just a revenue play for for Revolut? It's just like, hey, here's a way to get more revenue. And yeah, we push some other people out of the way. I love that point around the data ecosystem. I think that's a really interesting one. And actually, then it could be a, a two-pronged, you know, short-term revenue stream mm-hmm. as well as a longer-term. Uh, it will enable potentially a whole new kind of uh, product suite. So I think we're arriving at the point of saying Benjamin was completely wrong in his dismissal of this as an interesting move because actually there's probably quite a lot to it. And the folk at Rev- Revolut are quite savvy in doing this move. So I think, are we concluding this actually is quite an interesting move? Tim said it first. Yeah. Okay, in that case, we will move on to a couple of stories that we didn't have time to cover. So we'll quickly round up a few other stories um, that deserve a shout out. Deepa, do you want to get us started? So Pina offers wealth management for Indonesia's growing middle to upper class. So whilst many of Indonesia's investment apps are focused on hooking first-time investors with low fees and starting deposits, Pina is is targeting the middle to upper classes with wealth management services. Very relevant, we were talking about this earlier. So Pina was created because of the founder's own challenges with personal finance. Pina's automatic, diversified portfolios work by first determining a user's investment goals, time horizons, risk tolerance and priorities. It then invests in a portfolio of low-cost mutual funds. Indonesia's middle and upper class now includes 52 million people, according to the app, and Pina was created to give them access to investment services as they invest for goals, including buying a home, retirement and their children's education. So as we were talking about earlier, the space is booming and we're seeing globally that the sector who are almost emerging affluence are wanting the quality financial advice and the space isn't just restricted to people who are able to afford the fees and the minimum charge by personal wealth advisors. With a smart use of data and digital services, I think it's possible to build an intelligent service which really helps to educate this growing class and helps them feel empowered to own their own finances. And especially as we see this group grow in their both their numbers and wealth, I think it'll be a huge space. Thank you. So the next story is that Go Cardless is to acquire open banking platform Nordigan. Uh, this was reported in Fintech Finance. So Go Cardless, a direct p- bank payments firm, has announced its plans to acquire Nordigan, a, an open banking data provider, in its efforts to become the world's bank payment network. Go Cardless will incorporate Nordigan's open banking connectivity, connecting to more than 2,300 banks in 31 countries, into its account-to-account network. 
The acquisition means the fintech can pr provide free open banking connectivity at scale, opening up self-serve access to account information services to its customers. For a bit more information on this, we asked Duncan Barrigan, Chief Product and Growth Officer at GoCardless, how this will benefit GoCardless's customers. Our customers will benefit from us bringing this connectivity in-house so that we can offer the very best uh, bank payment open banking products in the market. The Nordigan team have done an incredible job of building an, an integration machine that's allowed them to get to nearly 2,400 integrations. Uh, we'll be able to offer the very best coverage in the market as we build those out. And it will also, having that full control and that full visibility will allow us to iterate and improve our products like instant bank pay and, and, and verified mandates. And the other side we're really excited about is that we believe open banking data is a building block for better financial services. Uh, to help small businesses access credit, to help people manage their finances. Uh, we believe that these building blocks should be free. So all of our customers will be able to access free open banking data uh, or indeed to take advantage of the additional insight offered by the premium products and, and services. And above all, be able to access all of that in one place so they can have the bank payments, they can have the data uh, all through, through GoCardless. So I think this is a really interesting story. I'm sure Dan is um, is all, all over this because it's very much very much up your street. Um, I think this one's really really interesting because Nordigan, I, you know, I remember Nordigan presenting years ago at, at Finnovate, an impressive little company, and you know, there's a diminishing number of companies that have got access to lots of data. You know, we've seen the high value, you know, the impressive valuations of companies like Plaid and Tink. I think there's going to be another a number of companies looking at this and thinking, bother, we've just missed a really good opportunity to acquire a little gem. So it's, you know, yes, it's part of the sort of wider consolidation of fintech, but I think there's going to be a lot of other companies that are thinking, damn, we should have, we should have swooped on Nordigan while it was available because I think it's a nice little company. It's done some great work. And I think, you know, well done, go cardless um, for, for picking that one up. Uh, we'll see if I'm wrong, um, which is a frequent occurrence, but I think that's a really smart deal by go cardless. Okay, let's bring everyone back for the final story of the week, which is that the world's first fintech sitcom is just what you'd imagine. This was reported in the Financial Times. I think some of our listeners may facepalm at this point, but we'll see. Hewlett-Packard Enterprises and NVIDIA have released the first episode of their fintech comedy miniseries, Get Ahead. The series follows an AI customer insights manager, a data scientist, and an IT manager as they navigate the challenges of AI development to launch their new AI-driven customer experience. The Financial Times fintech reporter and previous fintech insider guest Sid Venkatarama Krishnan was less than impressed with the sitcom's first episode. He wrote, The style is an imitation of The Office's mockumentary format with all the tropes of a mid-2000s sitcom, a hapless boss character who thinks they're hip, a data scientist with no social skills, and an irritatingly upbeat theme tune. Sticking a thin veneer of relatable everyman comedy on genuine hiring issues is truly the worst of both worlds, neither broad enough to be funny nor specific enough to appeal to the niche. The five to seven minute episodes will run every Thursday at 7pm GMT over four weeks. Before we discuss this with the panel, let's hear a clip from the trailer for Get Ahead. Yvette, Jasmine, right? I'm a data engineer with a bit of data scientist mixed in. You want to know about AI? This AI game is all about speed. Today is a big day. We have been looking for AI developers for our latest financial product. It could be the day I actually hire somebody. What do you mean they're not coming? They've got a job at a tech start. Of course they have. Okay, if you lost your mum. Why can't I link my data to the model? <laughs> the deadline is looming. Any the data set we talked about in a place I can actually use it. Who's that? Raise a ticket. Keep an open mind. Dwayne. Um <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say. That was hardly a glowing endorsement from the FT. Um have, have any of the three of you seen it? No, heard of it. Are you are you are you going to rush home and see if you can find it, 
Well, actually, I can see Dan, Tim, you're probably, I think you're at home anyway. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, Dan, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, I might put it on for two minutes, have a quick laugh, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? I'm going to rule it out. Do we think do we think Fintark is a is a suitable subject for a sitcom? I mean, is it? I mean, we talk about fintech having mainstream appeal. We talk about trying to get fintech products out to people. Do we think fintech is mainstream enough to be funny? I would like it to be a suits esque drama. I feel like that that's possibly something a little less dark than industry for investment banking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is there enough? Is there enough comedy for a whole series? I mean. I mean, I, I know we have amusing moments in our daily working lives, but are there enough to string together into into good storylines? I think there might be. I think it, it requires some some clever writing, and and you know, to to our earlier points, if it was done in a, an intelligent way, we could they could weave in some storylines around, you know, things like you know the open banking and the financial literacy piece, and that could be quite a a, a nice soft uh, landing for for those less literate people going through the uh the sort of fca sandbox and uh and trying to get in that could be a good a good episode couldn't it and uh, going up to see somebody at the fca who stamps their papers in a sort of comedic fashion i think it could be okay sadly no stamps just signatures (laughs) no stamps okay would would we would we rather see a drama or a documentary or a superhero movie based on fintech Would, would any of those work better Oh, might be too close to the bone. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to see a Wirecard documentary. That would be fascinating. Understanding, yeah, you know, where that went wrong and the the scandals behind that would, I think, be an interesting film. Though I didn't think my I wife think the FT would write that up very well. Yeah, they would. <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether the the journalist has actually um, published a book on on that as well. I think um, he has. Dan yeah, so I'm not sure I think he that. has. Yeah. All right. Last question. Um, who would so? Imagine there is a fintech sitcom and you're in it. Who would you want to play you in that fintech sitcom? Which is an impossible question because, of course, all movie stars are fantastically good looking. So almost by definition, you have to pick someone who's ridiculously good looking. But there we go. You all three of you are ridiculously good looking. So that's not so bad. I I think I'd have to go for someone uh, bald. I think I'm going to have to go for Larry David. He's He's pretty good. I'm not sure about playing me, but I feel like Helena Bonham Carter would be a very good addition to a fintech She's a very good actress, indeed. And I, th- I, th- I think again, not necessarily play me, but someone from the uh, probably Ray Fiennes. I think we could be a quite an interesting, uh, imposing character in in a, in a fintech setting. In his character as Voldemort, or just him as? I, th- I, I possibly because that kind of character is almost certainly out there. I would imagine somewhere uh, and give it could be could be good. But also, I'm saying this because uh, he has a less famous brother who is a farmer, and I feel like I should give him a shout out because he has a Jake Fiennes and he has an excellent new book out, which I recommend to everyone. Fantastic. I can't quite get my head past Ashton Kutcher because I know he in, invests in fintechs and so on and he kind of has that kind of bro thing that I think goes on in some fintechs. Okay, well, thank you. We have an upcoming Fintech Insider Insights interview with Dan McCrum. Um, thank you, Dan Morgan, for um, uh, reminding us, um, who is, of course, the journalist who broke the Wirecard story. Um, and so that's come, landing in the, in the coming weeks. So that will be super, super interesting. Okay, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. You've been fantastic. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Deepa? At 11fs.com or LinkedIn, Deepa Anakindi. Dan? At Dan Morgan One on Twitter or anything about Plaid, just Google our name and our website will come up. And Tim? We're at oxbury.com. And as for me, Benjamin, you can find me on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, Please join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day and goodbye. Goodbye.